This is the coolest show on climate change. Brought to you by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. From January the 1st, 2015 until now, 1,252 black people have been killed uh, at the hands of the police. And so you say, well, then how can you love the police in face of that information? How do you rise above and be able to engage in a transformative relationship with a person who feels like you're less than and your life doesn't matter? My guest today is none other than Dr. Mildred McLean. She is a phenomenal environmental justice pioneer and an executive director of the Harambe House in Savannah, Georgia, a mentor to so many in this environmental justice movement. And I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Well, first, let me just introduce to everybody um, somebody who really in the environmental movement needs no introduction. Uh, she is like a mother for many of us in this movement. It is no other than Dr. Mildred McLean. Uh, she co-founded and currently serves as the executive director of the Harambe House, uh, Citizens for Environmental Justice a community-based organization whose mission is to build the capacity of communities to solve their problems and to engage in positive growth and development. The organization was created in 1990 and is located in Savannah, Georgia, and serves communities at the local, state, regional, national, and international levels. Dr. McLean has been a human rights activist and teacher for uh, over 40 years. She has served on numerous committees, commissions, working groups, and boards. And more importantly, she is a lover and unapologetic of her love for Black people. And she is my dear friend. Dr. McLean, how are you? I am fabulous because I am talking to you this morning. I am comforted by the fact that the struggle continues. And as you said, I'm unapologetic about being Black and working for Black folks. My spirit is high. My emotions are sometimes raw. But I try to channel all of that into working even deeper and harder for our people and the planet. So I'm doing well. Had my CV test, I'm all good. I'm negative. I had the nose test and the throat test, so I'm good. I have so much to get to in this conversation with you because personally, I want to hear your wisdom and insight about this moment. There's so many questions have been brought to me to give to you in regards to the connection 
of racial justice and climate justice and environmental justice. And so I want to get to all that. But first and foremost, who is Dr. Mildred McLean? Mm. Now, that's a real good question. I, I guess I would start off by saying um, I'm, a, I'm a child of God. I am the daughter of Leandra Slaughter and Lorene McLean Singleton. I am the granddaughter of Maddie McLean. I am the mother of two beautiful daughters. I am the grandmother of three beautiful grandchildren. I'm getting ready to be a great grandmother. I am a, uh, a soldier uh, for liberation. I am a spiritual person who is living out this physical experience. I am an organizer and an educator. I'm a teacher by lover and by trade. And I say lover because I, I think I was chosen uh, to teach. I've been teaching since I was about eight years old. Uh, it is my passion and my love. So I would say Dr. McLean is a teacher. Uh, she's a mother. Uh, I mother not only my biological children, but uh, many children who are often, and that means that they're without parents or they're with parents that they may be estranged from. Uh, I'm a, a keeper of the culture, of African culture. I am a protector uh, of Mother Earth. I work towards the preservation of neighborhoods and communities. I am a person who loves justice, uh, who strives for more than equality, but what folks are talking about equity, I take that a step further. Uh, we as African people, we're looking for liberation. Uh, we're not looking for reform, although that may be a first step. But I am a person who has been raised as someone to respect her elders, to respect uh, young people with their wisdom, uh, to respect our environment, and a person who works with others to achieve missions and visions and goals and objectives that come up out of the people. I'm grassroots all the way. Uh, I'm a storyteller. Uh, some people say I should be more professional in my language, my demeanor. But I'm simply just a person who is very concerned about how the planet is treated, how people are treated, and in particular, how black people are treated around the globe. So I'm just one of the more regular people, ordinary person, just trying to do some stuff. Mm, no, well, you, you do that. You do it quite well. I guess one of the things that makes you remarkable to me is how intentional you are for loving us in this movement. I know many of us who do this work, um, when you see us, you're also doing the work. As I mentioned, you're running your own organization at the Harambe House down in Savannah, Georgia, and you're obviously doing way more than that, both nationally and internationally, regarding the issues of climate and the environment. But you ensure that we who are doing this movement are lifting up self-care and also that there is a way that we are loving one another, understanding the toll this takes. Is that something that is just who you are or is that something that you know you almost need to do because of how this, this work can break one down? 
I think it's both. Uh, it's certainly who I am because uh, I was trained by my mother and eight powerful women who were her sisters. And their life was built on a loving people and taking care of them. Uh, our house was never empty. Uh, we always had someone living with us. And I mean, I had so many cousins. I said, boy, we have a big family. They weren't necessarily our biological cousins, but uh, they were family because they were in need. Also, in this movement, when so many damaging, destructive, demoralizing, degrading things happen, it is essential that we continue to practice the principle of divine love. Because I've been taught by my elders that, and a lot of spiritual elders in particular, that it is through divine love that you can see your way through anything. Divine love is a precursor for being able to work with people that are not like you, that don't think like you, that may think that you are lesser than they are. If you are unable to love them, you be done slap them the taste out of their mouth, as my mother used to say. But it is through divine love that you're able to sit and listen and challenge. Now, I can be a rebel rouser when I want to, uh, but that is still undergirded with a love for people, with a love for what I think the creator intended of this world to be. If we don't love, I'm often um, think about Malcolm X and I think about Martin Luther King. I think about Fannie Lou Hamer. I think about Ella Baker. I think about Harriet Tubman. I think about Queen Mother Moore. I think about those giants whose shoulders we stand on. And it was their love for their people, their love for the planet that allowed them to go into situations that were so dangerous. It was as if love was a armor of sorts. So they would armor up in love so that they would have the patience to go through those kinds of horrific uh, things that were done against us, dogs being sicked on us, uh, hoses used uh, to pin us down, bombings, lynchings, um, hatred, uh, all those kind of terrible statements. I remember uh, when I tried to help integrate Savannah High School in Savannah, I ran into the Junior Ku Klux Klan. And I remember the day that the head majorette spit on me. And I almost went ballistic because I went for her throat. But it was the love that pulled me back. And instead of choking the life out of her, I went straight to the principal's office and I asked to be transferred back to an all-black school. So love is, is key. And often we say, oh, that's so, mm, so willy-nilly. Oh, that's so existential. Oh, that's so, ooh. No, it is essential that even we love our own people who sometimes err to the wrong side. And if you come out in anger and hate, nothing really gets done because you're trying to fight fire with fire and that's not going to work. You're going to have to fight fire with something else. So I'm a hugger. I hug so tight. Some people say, oh, Dr. McLean, I can't breathe because you're just hugging me too tight. Um, and I do that because I want people to feel my energy 
when I was 17 years old, I met a spiritual elder. And every Wednesday, we used to do a love meditation for the planet, uh, where a group of women got together and we would chant uh, and try to bring down what we was calling the pink flame of divine love to encompass the planet so that it would bring more light to our movement. And that's L-I-G-H-T, that divine light that then allows us to see beyond what our eyes see. And so love is uh, my mantra. Uh, it's how I move in frenemies, amongst frenemies, amongst friends, amongst enemies. And I can say from experience that it has gotten me very far because I've also sat in rooms with uh, uh, generals and folks who was responsible for killing thousands of people under the Department of Energy and the Department of Defense. And it was through love that I was able to sit in that room as a only black woman and only woman and still pursue an agenda of justice and equity for people who were living and still live around federal facilities uh, known as nuclear weapons production sites. So I am love, I practice love, I preach love, and I insist that anybody who is around me operate out of that same uh, motive. No, that's powerful. And I agree with you. And I guess, you know, as many young people now are trying to use um, love to take on the injustice of, um, of what they see now regarding killing of black and brown and red people um, around this country. They, they, they're trying to use love. I guess my question really goes to then how, if you can talk to a lot of those young folks who are literally fighting, the young warriors out there right now, how, how, how can we use love to take on the systems of oppression? And let me just say that, you know, there, there are, people know there are four types of systems of oppression. There are the ideological systems of, of oppression, which is like the worldview, where one group is better than another or a group doesn't even exist. Um, there's the institutional systems of oppression where, you know, how institutions just reinforce the ideology from the media and the government and healthcare and education and religion and all of that. There's the interpersonal aspects of oppression, um, meaning that the way that we inflict violence on each other based on our own ideologies and institutions. And then there's that internalized um, systems of oppression where the oppressor doesn't have to exert any more pressure because we now do it to ourselves. So those four aspects of the systems of oppression, the ideological, institutional, uh, interpersonal, and internalized, um, how do you see love as combating that? It's very difficult uh, because often when we think of love, we're thinking of the romantic, you know, personal relationships. Um, what I'm talking about is something that we are really given at birth uh, and then we are un we're untaught it. We unlearn it. Uh, divine love is something that is deposited in our DNA by the creator. So we are loving beings from Jump Street. So how do we maintain that love in the face of all of the things that we see that sort of speak to anti-love? And so that's a real difficult question to answer. 
But I, like I say, I, I suit up in it. Um, I study. And so I would say to young people that it is important to study history. It is important to study different views of history, because as we know, often we just get his story and not our story. So, for example, I'm telling uh, young people to go and reread uh, the writings of Dr. King. I'm asking them to reread the writings of Malcolm X. I'm asking them to read Ian Levanzant. I'm asking them to read people who have, out of the spirit of love, work with all kinds of people, uh, not just black people, but as you say, black, uh, red, brown, yellow, and the mixture. Um, I think that when we are focused on love and not hate, we're able to listen clearly or more clearly. And to change some of these systems, we've got to improve the communications between the different ethnic groups, the different uh, power groups, the different national groups, uh, because if we don't know that history, we haven't studied it, we don't know it. Uh, if we haven't practiced listening to one another, if we haven't practiced uh, forgiving some unconscious and conscious mistakes, uh, then we are doomed to repeat some of the same mistakes that have us almost in 50 years kind of going backwards. Now, I see a lot of hope, so I'm not saying that we haven't achieved some things over the last 50 years, but I had a meltdown a couple of days ago because I said, wow, after 58 years of participating in the liberation movement of people around the world and trying to practice and show love, I was kind of at that moment not really able to see a lot of um, impacts or results from that. But that was just the devil trying to get at me to try to say, uh, you need to give up. You need to, this, you ain't making no difference. And so it took me a minute to go back into my history. And the person who pulled me out of that was Harriet Tubman. Uh, she said, oh, no, daughter, mm -mm, we can't go down like that. Because just think of what I had to go through to try to bring slaves, people who were enslaved to freedom, what I had to go through. And so that made me rethink everything. And I came out of that sort of 15-minute uh, depression and meltdown, and I'm stronger than ever. When we go before people, we have to recognize that even though they may be in a power position, they're still people just like us. They brush their teeth the same way. They got to go use the bathroom the same way. Blood, if they get cut, they're going to bleed. And so we've got to see them as equals so that we don't get into that position. Oh, I don't have any power. I'm powerless. Uh, they have more money. They have more guns. They have more this, that, the other, and the third. But Gandhi, Dr. King, Randy Luham, they showed us how using love allowed them to press the movement forward. And to be able to galvanize people who would otherwise not have made one single movement. I think the young people, the young white people that you see now, they're struggling to learn how to love 
because they've been programmed by the system and sometimes their parents and family not to love. Oh, you can only love these people right here because they're like you. You can't love those people over there because they're inferior or they're different or their lifestyle is this. So I appreciate and applaud what they're doing. And I think that it becomes our responsibility as elders to share our experience with them, how we have made it through the movement for 50 years and have not given up yet. We ain't going to let nobody turn us around. We don't care what it is. And we're not going to let anybody stop us from loving because we are commanded by the creator. We are commanded by our ancestors. We are commanded, if you are in traditional African religions, the the Orishas demand, and they can get really rough with you, but the bottom line is they still operate out of this principle of love because love supreme overcomes. It's a little slower. The process is slower, but it's surer. So in a sense, We have to refocus and recenter our energy in love so that it gives us the mechanisms and the tools to stand in the face of what it would be dangerous. And we wouldn't go into the it's like going into a lion's den with a poke chop suit on. You know, we got to go back and regroup and say, okay, even if I have a poke chop suit on and the lion is the enemy, I got to go on up in there and trust that there's a higher power. And when I talk like this, you know, my professional uh, uh, activists and revolutionary people, they say, girl, we don't even want to hear that. And I tell them, yeah, but you're going to hear it because it is a proven fact that supreme love can conquer all. It's just that you have to be patient with it. And a lot of times we get that, get impatient because, you know, you see Brother Maude down in Brunswick killed in February. Then here you back in May uh, with Brother Floyd. And then as I shared earlier with uh, Brother TC that uh, my 10-year-old grandson brought to me yesterday, I asked him to do some research on how many black people have been killed at the hands of the police. Uh, from 2010 to 2020. And he came back in the midst of that research and he said, Grandmama, I want to tell you that from January the 1st, 2015 until now, 1,252 black people have been killed uh, at the hands of the police. And so you say, well, then how can you love the police in face of that information? How do you rise above and be able to engage in a transformative relationship with a person who feels like you're less than and your life doesn't matter? How do you do that? You do that because you're rooted and anchored in your history. You're rooted and anchored in the truth. You're rooted and anchored in the experience of many of our mothers, fathers, grandmothers, grandfathers, aunts, uncles, cousins, neighbors who have used that as a strategy to continue to engage in a movement that is seeking beyond equity and justice, but liberation. So it's kind of hard to answer that question, but that's how I would come at it. Well, you, you answered it quite you answered it quite well. Uh, it didn't seem too hard for you to answer it just now. Uh, you did, you did very well. But I want to keep that 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 thread going. 
because we are now seeing the spread of a global pandemic. And at the same time, the continuation of police brutalizing our people. So how do you see this uh, intersection or the intersectionality of these two issues? And where do we start to combat these issues? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, Everything in our lives in America, unfortunately, is impacted by systemic, institutional, and personal racism. The police brutality is nothing new to us. And what we see in the pandemic is the ugly face of inequities flaring its head up. There are more people of color that, if you look at it percentage-wise or proportional-wise, that are tested positive for, for the virus, more people being impacted by family members being tested for the virus positive, and even dying. And that is no surprise to us. Why? Because already we are burdened from Jump Street. We, we don't have the access to health care. We don't have the access to resources to stay on our meds. Uh, we don't have community health centers. We don't have physicians and nurses who have been trained to diagnose illnesses that are directly the result of uh, environmental injustice and environmental racism. Uh, so the pandemic, once again, has pointed out that our healthcare system is shot, that uh, inequities uh, prevail. And so when you then look at the mentality of the police force, and I'm not saying that all policemen are bad and that they are, are racist, but I'm saying a large number of them are, and sometimes it's camouflaged, so they act out of. The pandemic has brought a fear. It has increased our anxiety, increased our fear. And that's within the police as well. And they always expect us to act out. So they sort of do like a preemptive strike. You know, before, uh, Mr. Floyd, before you get me, I'm going to get you. Ahmad, before you get me, I'm going to get you. And so that intersection is the fact that everything in our lives here in America often is seen through a race lens. Sometimes we look at a class lens, but more often, it's that race lens. Racism prevails across the board when we look at education, health care, community engagement, economic growth, response to climate change, response to pandemics, response to just the need of addressing the increased natural disasters that we face. In the Black community, we don't have evacuation routes readily available. We don't have our emergency kits set aside. We're just trying to live from day to day, so we can't stock, stock up no food and bandages and this, that, and the other, because we're trying to live from day to day. So there are a lot of ways to look at the intersection. And, you know, that's that new word, intersection, intersection. And often I kind of laugh. I say, OK, what do you mean intersection? You know, how they relate to each other, how they crisscross, how they impact. 
So we have to look at this thing in a like a comprehensive way. All of the parts work together. All of the parts work together. And the mindsets of those who are in power, including the law enforcement folk, often dictate the behavior that they demonstrate. When the testing first started for the CV-19, the testing wasn't going on in, in the vulnerable communities, as we say. Wasn't going on in the environmental justice communities. It was somewhere else. And, but it was through our advocacy and our agitation that then we were able to change that so that almost everybody can get tested now and get tested for free. Again, I would say that all of those things intersect together. But I'm going to flip that question back to you, Rev, because you you work at a real national level. You do a lot of traveling. Uh, you not only deal with uh, climate change, you're not only in the streets, but you're in the suites as well. How do you see this pandemic, not only of the virus, but of that racist virus that's going on and how law enforcement plays out policing our communities? What, how do you see that? Because you're not only an advocate and an, an activist, but you're also a spiritual man. You also command, you have that title, reverend. So how do you see that? Because it is important that our young people see different perspectives of the question that you pose. So t t talk to me. No, thank you for that. I mean, I think I agree with you. I see our relationship to creation as inherently bound up with our relationships to each other. And when that, when that relationship is off, like it is with each other, um, it's also off, off with, our, with creation. And so what I see now is genocide, pure and simple. I see genocide. I see literally um, the wiping out of not only of people of color, but of entire communities of people of color. And it is with impunity that they are looking to kill black and brown and red people um, in this country, either directly uh, through brutality or through policies, which I think is also one of the things that we deal with within that crossroads where we're seeing policies put into place. One thing that we say a lot is that either you shape policy or policy will definitely shape you. And we're seeing the policies of white supremacy, the policies of police brutality, um, the policies of rogue police departments that used to be the slave patrols, through the policies of these institutions literally shaping our existence. And we're tired. You, you're right. We are sick and tired of being sick and tired. And so we're at a moment now where we're trying to connect the dots. But in that, um, you know, I also see this thing where the reason why with Ahmaud and um, in Georgia, Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor in Kentucky or George Floyd in Minnesota and many, 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 many more, even Christian Cooper, the birder who, um, who, was, a, who was attacked in essence 
through the weaponizing of 9-11 in Central Park in New York City. What you see there is this lack of respect for us as humans. Um, there isn't a respect there. There is, I can do to this individual or this person whatever I want to do, which I guess leads me back to you because I've been encouraged by seeing our movement respond in many cases. I've been encouraged by seeing them call for the, to defund the police. I've been encouraged by seeing a lot of the new groups, so to speak, um, of young people who have been definitely looking to be not only allies, but to be an accomplice in this movement. And so I've been encouraged by that, for sure. But there is a little bit of me that goes, because, you know, part of my story starts in Louisiana. And so part of my uh, development in this movement clearly begins with Hurricane Katrina, which is 15 years this year on August 29th of 2020, will be 15 years uh, since Katrina hit the Gulf Coast. And in that, um, we saw particularly poor people and Black people being left behind in the richest country in the world. So a little bit of my frustration, and you can help me with this, Doc, is our movement should have been further along in this conversation of breaking down the silos between racial justice um, and climate justice. Hmm. And I think after 15 years, um, not 15 days or 15 months, even 15 hours, they're now beginning to get it. But after 15 years, I begin to wonder what took so long. And so my problem then um, is it that we can't intersect the issues of climate justice and racial justice? Because I, I know they're already interlinked. So in other words, people ask me all the time, they say, well, Rev, you know, you know, how do we link racial justice and climate justice? I said, well, they're already linked. It's like you asking me, well, how do I, uh, you know, drive my car with no engine? It, the, the engine's in the car. So it's, they, they don't, that's going to happen. So racial justice and climate justice are one and the same. If you're doing it, you're doing it incorrectly. So my problem is not so much with the aspect of how do we link, so to speak, racial justice and climate justice, but my issues with white supremacy, which mm. causes one to look down on something as it's beneath them or has no value. So my question to you then is that, you know, is the reason this, our climate movement has been so delayed after Hurricane Maria and Irma and Harvey and Sandy and Katrina, um, after we see what's going on down in Savannah, Georgia, or we see what's going on in Detroit or in Oakland, is the reason that they're so delayed isn't because they know that we are most impacted by the climate crisis. It's because they also have that same mentality that we're not worth it to be a part of the conversation. Rev, uh, now let me remind you, because you, you went into some amnesia right quick, is that uh, we are in the United States of America. And you know how this thing got started after it was already started. So white supremacy has been uh, with us since the Europeans came over here. 
everything they did was predicated in white supremacy. They tried to take the Bible to use as the evidence. You know, they flipped the script. And so they used that to try to prove that, in fact, white people were superior. They were ordained to be the leaders of the planet. They had all the answers and all of that good stuff. But as uh, Reverend Sharpton said at the memorial yesterday, uh, we as a people are very strong uh, in our uh, pursuit of genius. We come from a people uh, who were geniuses. We are scientists. We are researchers. We are educators. We are all those great things. But we couldn't express all of that because you had your foot on our neck. And so when we look at that historically, that has always been the case is that, and I don't know if that's out of fear or that's just something that we don't know how to explain, but white people historically, and I'm from the South and I'm raised in Savannah, I'm in the deep South, have always thought that they were better than we are. And because that, they've always thought that they had to lead us. Now, the movement don't get, don't get right until the white people leading. And that has been symptomatic in the climate justice movement. Now, climate justice, environmental justice, racial justice, justice is justice. I don't care what area you're talking about. Justice is justice. So when you talk about environmental justice, you're talking about climate justice. When you're talking about environmental justice and climate justice, you're talking about racial justice. When you're talking about racial justice, you're talking about all the aspects that are in one's life that is impacted by policy and behavior. So we have this historical piece that we constantly deal with that then manifests itself in today's society. I went to the People's Climate March, I think that was 2018, big, lots and lots of people from everywhere. But we had an issue trying to organize out of Savannah with a, I'm not going to call the name, of a top green group. And they felt that they had to come into Savannah to organize us to participate in something that was for our benefit. And in the midst of them trying to do that, and we challenged that, they pulled their resources. They said, mm-mm, mm-mm, you're not falling in line because we're leading this. So there's something about us having to change the perspective, the understanding, the view of who Black people are and what they are capable of doing, who people of color are and what they're capable of doing. We don't need no savior. We don't need no leaders. We can co-lead. And sometimes we be we need to be in the lead because of the experiences of oppression in all of its manifestations that we've experienced. There has been a consistent attempt to commit genocide against people of color in this country. A consistent, it has never stopped. It is going on right now as we speak. And it has been difficult to get our white allies to even use the word genocide. You're seeing more and more white people say black lives matter. And that's all well and good. But when the hype dies down, 
when the cameras are gone, when you don't feel like getting on Instagram no more, when you've rolled up and ta- taken your staged photo ops, where will you be? Will you still be working with us? It's a side-by-side fight. But like I say, in some instances, we have to be in the lead and white people have to follow. And that has been an issue. Even with progressive thinkers, it's like, it's an underlying kind of thing. Like, oh no, you know, I know how to deal with strategy. You might be an activist. You can go throw a Molotov cocktail, but you can't figure out how to design a policy. And I say to that BS, we can do it all. So there's a lot that has to be done in terms of changing the mindset, because I was very upset with that People's Climate March, because it seemed once again that we were being marginalized, that we were being disenfranchised, and I'm going to be right down, kind of ugly right now, being used, because you had put these millions of dollars up, and you had to have a big show, and central to that show was to have the face of people of color. It's been two, three years since then, and there have been some progress, but from some of the central leaders of that march who put it together, where are they? Are they still assisting to support on the ground organizing, on the ground mobilizing? Are they still supporting communities, participating and being engaged in policy development from the local, state, and the national, federal level? Are they still raising money to make sure that we even have computers? We're in this virtual reality now, and most of us still got flip phones. Now, how are we going to be on a Zoom call with a flip phone? It's impossible. So the infrastructure has to be changed. The attitudes have to be changed. And people have to recognize that people of color can lead themselves. They can lead the movement. They are strategists. They are tacticians. They are street walkers. They are organizers. They are educators. And they can do the darn thing. But it is more powerful, more powerful when you have a united front, a united front within the Black community, a united front in the Latino community, a united front in the indigenous community a united front in all of the communities and then with the white communities who want to serve as allies. How do we work together to slay that big giant called racism? And it's not just, and I get in trouble for this, it's not just the institutional and the structural racism that we have to confront. We have to confront that personal racism because the institutions and the structures are powered by people. They don't empower themselves. It's the people who implement the policy. It's the people who create the policies. It's the people who enforce the policies. It's the people who see that compliance to the policy is on board. So we have to attack all of that at the same time. That's a multifaceted, multi-level, multi-tiered approach to movement building. And when you're in the midst of being sprayed with pepper or spray and tear gas, And they know what the impact of tear gas can be on the coronavirus itself. And you still do it. Something's wrong with your head. So somehow we got to get up in there. I always used to say for our people, and this may be global, you have to win the hearts 
and the minds of people. And then you have to allow people to understand the root causes of where they are. You have to make them aware and share that information. And Malcolm said that if you do that, if you bring that awareness, if you bring that information, if you build their capacity, they will be able to come up with community-based, neighborhood-based, specific solutions and actions that will drive them to meet their needs. So it's a complex struggle, but all of those parts have to work hand in hand in concert. And let me just reiterate to my brothers and sisters um, in the white community who stand with us. Yes, sometimes you have to relinquish those wanes. You have to relinquish those leadership positions. You have to, yes, bring diversity, but I don't mean bringing two or three people of color and then don't give them no power. Because uh, you have to have power to make change. So it's a whole mindset that we got to get in there and change. And, and, and I, I ask our brothers and sisters and allies not to be afraid to let us lead, not be afraid to follow our leadership. Because if you study the real our story, you'll see that we're good at it. Many of those, and for those who are listening, Big Greens are large environmental groups. Um, um, who have large budgets and large resources and infrastructure. Many of them, you know, sometimes things do happen that creates a paradigm shift. And so let's just say this moment, because it is different. I mean, we are seeing more younger white allies side by side with our black brothers and sisters, our brown and red uh, family in the streets. And so let's just say, um, let's just think, let's say that folks are sincere and this is, uh, that they're sincere in wanting to, um, now connect the dots. And if I could, which the power of this platform, we, we can, uh, is if I could introduce you to them and you just said a number of things, I want to be real clear if I can say, hey, everybody at the uh, Big Green, all of you, thank you for being here. This is the amazing Dr. Mildred McLean, and you've been asking about what you can do in this moment right now. Like right now, what you can do. Um, is it posting things to your website? Is it uh, supporting organizations? Dr. McLean is here. And I guess if I was to give you that floor, which I'm giving it to you right now, would it what, what either a statement or a question? Because I actually want this to be to them. I actually want this to be just like that at real time conversation. So, Dr. McLean, uh, Big Green Groups, Big Green Groups, Dr. McLean, Dr. McLean, what would you like these folks to do right now so that we can get this thing together? I want you to use all of your platforms, uh, you know, and I'm not that right into the computers and all that technology stuff, but I know that there are so many and it's reaching a vast number of people. I'm a, I'm a polar bear, so I'm not in it, but I do work with young people who are engaged. I'm asking everybody to use their platforms to get the word out that it is time for transformation. It is time for us to really 
uh, ratchet up our sincerity about being in solidarity. It's time to raise massive amounts of resources, not just money, but resources that can be put at the disposal of hundreds of environmental justice, climate justice, racial justice groups throughout this country whose agendas are challenging genocide and who are marching us toward liberation. Those have to be resourced, even in terms of the di digital divide. Find community-based organizations, grassroots organizations who do not have a decent computer and provide them with one. Provide them with a printer. Provide them with a decent a cell phone, snatch that flip up phone from them and throw it clean out the window and get them a smartphone so that they can participate in all of these Zoom calls and webinars and webinars and all of that. But get that word out, get those resources. I have to put in a plug because for some green groups and some environmental justice groups who have been working for the past couple of years to have a paradigm shift as to how EJ climate justice groups work with the big greens. And I must say that I am tremendously impressed and it gives me room for hope. It strengthens my faith in this whole idea about divine love because divine love was the basis of these groups coming together and etching out what has been called the just and equitable climate change platform, something that was that came out of the minds and hearts of several big green groups uh, and environmental justice pioneers. And they actually have put their money where their mouth is. They're not just mouthing we, of them being an ally. They are raising dollars. Um, and it's so, so interesting. Uh, yesterday, one of, and I'm not a sports person, but I think it was a quarterback from some team that talked about him not supporting the taking the knee on the national anthem because his grandfather's was in the World War II, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, clearly he was out of order and he probably just hadn't had enough sleep and he was having a nightmare and that's why he said it. So this, today he's apologized and all of that good stuff. But what the NFL has done, I think, is they've put up millions of dollars that will now be distributed. And be very careful how people raise millions of dollars and distribute them because, you know, lots of shams and frauds go on. But I thought that that was particularly dynamic in this particular atmosphere, raising money to give to Black Lives Matter with no strings attached. That's powerful. That's powerful. These green groups that are working with the environmental justice groups that, and you know, one of your good friends and mentor, Dr. Beverly Wright from the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice is a part of that group. And you know, she don't take no mess. And so as a result of that effort, some organizations throughout the country will be resourced in such a way that they'll be able to double up the work. The Harambe House for four years worked with no money. And we engaged in the same level of work as if we had hundreds of thousands of dollars and we only had maybe 30 or 40. So now to be able to, to look forward to having some resources, that means, number one, we're going to be able to hire youth, young organizers, because I'm 71 years old and I can't keep getting out there on the front line. So I got to have room to mentor, to tutor to pass on lessons learned, best practices, to pass on my knowledge and experience, to train up folks so that they can then be the hands and feet 
my mama say foots, the hands and foots out on the streets and in the back. Those are the boots on the ground. And so I'm, I'm excited that there is this piece, Rev, that the creator has brought to us. The pandemic is no accident. The pandemic, in my view, is here to stop us in our tracks because we had gone so far off the grid. We didn't even know what family meant. We didn't know what being at home uh, for more than eight hours, you know, meant. And the pandemic causing for residents in place caused us to take a step back. It allowed us opportunity to engage in families in ways we hadn't done in decades. It allowed us to be able to do some self-examination to look at ourselves, our work, our family, our neighborhood, and our planet. It gave us the opportunity to look at a more spiritual view of what was happening on the material plane. And that is important because sometimes reflection is necessary to gird up our armor, to strengthen ourselves, to be able to come out working from a new paradigm to shift the needle. And the needle has to be shifted. So I have a lot of hope if, for the folks who are big greens, little greens, and between greens. Uh, here is a great opportunity for you to step up and step up big time. And I applaud and appreciate all you've done in the past, but now I want you to put your big people panties and drawers on and do more because you can do more. Uh, there are a lot of resources in the United States um, that have gone to organizations that didn't do anything with it. But I, there are organizations and small groups that if you give them $5,000, they'll do $500,000 worth of work. And I just want to remind folk that our nonprofit sector is run primarily by women, women of color, and we make the least money. So we got to do something about that. We need some benefits. We need to be able to go and have our teeth dealt with, but we can't do it because we don't got no insurance. So again, we're looking at a multifaceted approach, looking at a lot of components that need to be addressed. But I think that the time is right. I think the time is right because I not only saw young white allies out, I saw white people in business suits with ties and briefcases. I saw white people who were elders holding up their little sign. But one thing I saw that disturbed me is there was a young uh, white girl, and I forget where it was, a few of them, 11, 12 years old, posting up signs, Black Lives Matter. And a white man, a grown white man on a bicycle, started snatching their flyers, intimidating them, and really abusing them because they were erring to the right side. An 11-year-old white girl posting Black Lives Matter, that's a fundamental change. And it's the one that we need. Dr. McLean, thank you so much always for your wisdom, for your love for just who you are. I, I can't thank you enough um, for everything you do for us as a people, obviously for our communities and our planet. 
Um, if people want to support, and I encourage them to donate and support to the Harambe House, the HarambeHouse.net, the HarambeHouse.net. Our email address is CFEJ, and that stands for Citizens for Environmental Justice, CFEJ.Harambe, H A R A M. B-E-E, Harambe stands for Let's Pull Together. So that's C-F-E-J dot Harambe at gmail.com. Our phone number is area code 912-233-0907. And Reb, I want to give you your props right now. You started something that was fantastic. It has had a great impact on the climate justice uh, movement. As a young man rooted in the civil rights movement, in the spiritual traditions of our people uh, in New Orleans, been tutored by some of the best, you took what was given to you and you were able to manifest a vision that continues to be relevant today. You have taken power to move against power because you know power concedes nothing without a struggle and you have placed in the minds of people in the board's room that I, I appreciate you so much for that because we have a lot of people in the streets but a lot of times where the decisions are being made in the suites you're right there and I appreciate you for that I love you brother I pray for you and your family and the work that you're doing always lifting you up wherever I go. My dear sister, thank you. That was Dr. Mildred McLean. I love you. Stay strong. I love you. Stay strong. Power to the people. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a nonprofit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. Think 100. Think 100. Think 100.